There is an old sermon illustration uh, that is told about a woodcutting competition, and it's been used, used some more, and probably overused. I think I've probably used it a couple times, but it fits so perfectly with our series this month that I wanted to share it again just to reinforce how important this topic is. And the story is told that there were these two men who had a disagreement. They couldn't come to an understanding, and so they decided to settle it through a competition. It was a good old-fashioned wood chop-off. You know, that's a thing, and uh, definitely a thing. They both had a nearly limitless supply of uncut wood, and the goal was to see who could cut the most wood and stack it by sundown. And so the competition began right after lunch, and so they went at it, and they both started sending wood chips flying with these strong, rhythmic chops just going at it. And about an hour into the competition, one competitor walked away to take a break. So the other guy thought, this is my chance. This is my chance to get ahead. While he rests, I'll keep going, and I'll build up this huge lead he won't be able to come back from. A few minutes later, the other guy returned, began chopping again. Another hour or so passed. The same guy walked away, and the other guy says, I'm not stopping now. I've got, I've got this as long as I keep pressing, as long as I keep going. And the same pattern continued throughout the afternoon. The sun finally set, and the man who kept working throughout the day was stunned when the competition ended to walk over and to look at the other man's woodpile and see that he had easily been beaten. I don't understand, he said to the woodcutter. You took breaks to rest all throughout the afternoon, and I kept on working. How in the world did you cut more wood than I did? And the other man replied, my friend, I did take breaks, and each time I made sure to stop and sharpen my axe. I didn't cut the wood. The axe did. And there's a huge principle here for us that if you don't learn how to break, you will break. It's a biblical principle. Because here's the thing, when we Sabbath, when we break, when we, uh, to use the word from last week, when we experience that nuach, that, that relationship caused by stepping away and dwelling, uh, when we do that, we are reconnecting with God in a different way than we normally connect with God in our regular patterns throughout the week. Sabbath is designed for an intense time of intimacy and connection with God. And when we do that, we are reminded that it's not our strength getting stuff done in this life, it's his strength in us. Just like he didn't cut the wood, the ax did. We don't get all this done. We don't accomplish things. It's God working through us that gets stuff done. And it's so important to step away to make that happen. Uh, God wants us to work hard, but he wants us to put just as much effort into our pause as we do into our work. And when we do, we're sharpening the ax. We're equipping ourselves to do the work God has called us to do and to, to do it more effectively, with more power, with his power. Because what we need to learn is we don't cut the wood, the axe does. Ephesians 3.20, now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. You know, we, we read that verse all the time, and I think sometimes we forget all glory to God who is able through his mighty power to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. But I left out a part there, at work within us. Guys, that is just as much an important part of that verse as God's power is. We are an integral part of God working in this world. And we have to allow God to work in us. It's God's power that equips us. It's God's power that gave us life in the first place. How can we possibly think that we can do this whole life thing on our own and in our own strength? And some of you 
are trying to do exactly that. You're trying to succeed at work, succeed at marriage, succeed at parenting, succeed at doing something meaningful for God, and you're never stopping to disconnect from the world and to reconnect with God, <coughs> who is the source of your strength. You cannot continually ignore the light on your car's dashboard uh, that says it's time to change the oil. You can't. If you ignore it, your car is going to run rough. If you ignore it long enough, your car will break down entirely, and then you will have to get the work done. It's no longer an option. You might as well implement a rhythm of maintenance instead of having your car break down. It just makes sense. Therefore, the light. Same principle applies to our lives. Get a rhythm of spiritual, physical, and emotional maintenance that God has established through Sabbath. So we don't break down because rest is required. And that's what this series called Pause is about. We're learning how to be strategic and intentional with Sabbath. So let's learn some more together today. And can I get, Glenn, can you grab my Yeti there? I need that for the end of my message. And I just realized I left it back there. Ladies and gentlemen, Glenn McCain. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> you cannot continually uh, go without it. We're going to look at two passages this morning. The first is a story from John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 4 through 10. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift, no strings attached, God's gifts are always good. If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. The next passage is in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift. There's that word that we've seen before just in the last passage. The gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? That's a hopeful question. He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and, are, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So when Jesus gives you a gift, when he hands you a drink of living water, you need to drink deeply, and you need to drink the rest. Now, my wife, Melissa, is an amazing woman. I should get an amen there. All right, there we go. Mother to seven, homeschool teacher, general contractor for our second home, friend to everyone she meets. She's pretty much a rock star. But one thing she doesn't do well is drink. She says in the morning, oh, Jeff, I need coffee. Um, will you make me one? Of course. I make the coffee, go through the arduous process of handcrafting this pour-over coffee, and I bring it into her. I hand her the cup while she's getting ready. 
That night, I come home from work, and I walk into our bathroom, and I find the mug still sitting on the bathroom counter, about two sips gone. Her nightstand has been known to have about four or five glasses of water, all half-filled because she never drinks the whole thing. Some of you are looking at your spouse right now going, yes. It's like the movie Signs played out in real life. And this quirky trait of Melissa's is just one of the million things I love about her. She wouldn't be Melissa without it. But here's the thing. Some of us approach the gift that God gives us, and we leave it after only a sip. He gives us living water to drink deeply. He gives us power from the Holy Spirit, and we leave it sitting on the nightstand. We've got to drink it all. We've got to drink the rest. Quick survey here. How many of you would say by a show of hands, you like, keyword, like to work out, you enjoy exercise? Okay. Now, how many are the opposite? You do not enjoy exercise. All right, those of you who raised your hands the first time saying you like to work out, you are officially dismissed from the service. You are not welcome here anymore. Uh, in fact, run home. You'll enjoy it, right? Um, because I have found camaraderie and commonality with the second group of people. Y'all are my people, okay? Do not, I will lift up both hands, both feet, the whole thing. Tell the truth and shame the devil. I do not like to work out, okay? I just don't. There's absolutely nothing in me that finds enjoyment or pleasure in going to work out. I'm theologically and physiologically persuaded that working out was a result of the fall of man. Um, you cannot have Pilates and have paradise. It just doesn't work. Anybody with me on that? Okay. So I don't like to work out, but here's the thing. I do work out. I wish I was more consistent, okay? But I plank at my office during the day. I take breaks, and I have my little mat, and I do planks. I go for a run, and I put some mileage on my running shoes. I bust out the Nike app on my phone to tell me how slow I am. And the reason I do all of that is because I don't like to do it. I don't like to do it, so I do it. I do not want to rob myself of the gift of doing something that I don't like to do. See, when I exercise, I get the gift of the power of doing something I don't like to do. I do it. Obviously, it's the right thing. It helps keep you healthy, all that stuff. But I do it because I'm giving myself the gift of letting my feelings know that they don't have the final say. I give myself the powerful gift of letting my body, my flesh, know that you have to come under the subjection to my mind and my spirit, my will. Because we're not just body. We are spirit as well. And I want to embrace and I want to grow the power of the word discipline in my life. And doing something that I know is right, that I don't like to do, reinforces that discipline in my life. Discipline is where we get the word disciple. And we're going to come back all year to this concept of what it means to be a disciple. And you cannot be a disciple without discipline. You cannot live the life of a disciple without discipline. Discipline is the bridge between who you are and who you want to become. See, here, here's another great point. Discipline is the thing that makes you do consistently what other people do occasionally. Discipline is the thing that makes you do consistently what other people do occasionally. And there are many other reasons as well, but this is one of the reasons that God has given us the gift of fasting. 
Part of the process of denying ourselves food for a period of time in which we devote ourselves to prayer is discipline. Discipline is a fruit of fasting. So let's talk a little bit more about working out. When you're doing cardio, your goal should be to reach and maintain your target heart rate. Okay, that's your goal when you're doing cardio. At l ideally, about 80% of your maximum heart rate is, is kind of a good goal where you want to land. And there, there's whole charts and, you know, stuff that you can look up based on your age and your gender and all that stuff about what your target heart rate is. And what you want to do is identify that. And you want to stay there for at least 15 minutes, ideally about 30 when you're doing cardio. You want to stay at that target heart rate. That zone of 60 to 85% 80 of your maximum heart rate is the zone of being uncomfortable. It doesn't feel good. Um, it's when it starts to hurt is where you're in that zone. It's when you know you're working. You're now putting the work in working out, okay, when you reach that target heart rate and you stay there. You don't want to go above 80 to 85% because at that point, well, you're, you're about to die. So it's probably not a good idea to work out to that point. The goal is to keep yourself in that uncomfortable zone for about 30 minutes, to push yourself beyond what is comfortable and easy and lean into the discomfort for a period of time. This is how Jesus taught the disciples. He took his 12 disciples and he was consistently pushing them into the uncomfortable zone. Uh, he was consistently trying to get them into the spiritual equivalent of their target heart rate, into the zone of discomfort, pushing them out of their comfort zone. And he was, uh, he was putting them in scenarios and situations where they were uncomfortable. Uh, because it's the uncomfortable zone when your faith gets stretched, when you grow and become stronger. He knew that he only had three years to train his disciples. Three years before the shift, before the transition where he was going to stop doing things for them and he was going to shift to doing things in them and through them. And he had to stretch them to get them there. He had to increase their capacity. He had to teach them discipline. And all of those things require us to be comfortable. Un uncomfortable, sorry. And we don't like that, though, because we all like our comfort. We love to be comfortable. And some of y'all are like, oh, thank God for the Holy Spirit because he's my comforter. But can I tell you the reason you have the comforter is because God is pushing you into the uncomfortable. That's the reason God sent us the comforter. Why else would you need the comforter? You think God has given you the comforter for you to cuddle? No, he's pushing you to be a witness for him. And the reason you need the comforter, the Holy Spirit, is because God has a way of pushing you into the uncomfortable. In fact, if you look at the ministry of Jesus, he was always comforting those people who were disturbed, and then he was disturbing those who were too comfortable. He was consistently following that throughout his ministry. He would push these comfortable people into situations that made them sweat. He'd tell them, hey, guys, get on the boat. Oh, how's the weather going to be? Oh, it'll be all right. You'll see. Come on, let's go. Consistently leading them into scenarios of discomfort. All throughout the Gospels, filled with stories where Jesus put his disciples in the uncomfortable zone. And the one we just read today in John chapter 4 has to be at or at least near the top of the list. Because one day he's chilling with his disciples and he says, guys, I need to go to Samaria. I need to go to Samaria. I wish the Bible had facial expression pop-ups that would show when things get said. Um, you know, at least little emotes, you know, in the scriptures that would show us what they looked like. Um, I wish I could have seen the faces of these Jewish disciples as this Jewish Jesus said, I need to go to a town 
and a region that you have been avoiding your entire life. I wish I could feel the tension in the air as Jesus says, I've got to take you into a place to the people you despise. Jews could not stand the Samaritans. You're talking about 500 years of conflict, 500 years not just of animosity, but of downright hatred. They could not stand them. And yet God says, yeah, that's where we need to go. Can you imagine the discomfort that the disciples felt as they took off on this journey, the, the sidebar conversations that took place on the route there? They said, what? We are, why are we going there? Jesus, this is the area we, we've been trained to avoid our entire lives. And Jesus is indirectly saying to us, I know, but you have to understand that sometimes the avoided place is actually the appointed place. Sometimes that place that we avoid with everything we have is exactly where God has appointed us to go. The areas and the places in your life that you're trying to avoid, often those are the exact places that God wants to take you through to accomplish something incredible for him. God's way of trying to get you to address the issues in your life that maybe you're trying to avoid. Those are often the places that God says, yeah, I have an appointment there for you. The thing you don't want to deal with, the place you don't want to go, the people you don't want to talk to, God says, I have to take you there because this is actually, guys, this is the power of Sabbath. Because whenever you Sabbath, whenever you pause, it allows you to not just live your life, but to really look at your life and say, are there areas in my life that I'm avoiding? That God says, there's an appointment there. Are there issues that I have not addressed that God says, I have an appointment for you? Am I, I'm so busy going through life and going through my routine, routine that I never stop to analyze the avoided places in my life. Let God get to the hidden places, the avoided places, the places you don't want to go because God has an appointment there for you to address those places and bring healing and bring wholeness to bring rest. He makes them go to Samaria. And I can see them rolling their eyes, uh, roll eyes emoji, uh, when they get there. And, and then he makes it worse. He says, oh, y'all go get me some food real quick, okay? Head over there into the village. Really? He makes them go into the town and order some food. Now there are forced interactions here that they just don't want to have. And as they go away, the Bible says something I've always struggled with. It says, Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well. And that scripture has bothered me. Because I'm trying to figure out how in the world is Jesus tired? How in the world is a God who never sleeps and never slumbers, how is he getting tired? The scripture confused me. I get Jesus wept. Okay, that was my, my favorite scripture because it's the shortest and it was easy to memorize. I get Jesus wept. I understand that because he's teaching us when he wept that I cannot raise somebody from the dead until I first weep with them. How dare you try to bring resurrection to somebody until you first felt what they felt and know what they were going through. Don't try to resurrect somebody. Don't try to bring them back to life. And I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about spiritually in this case when you haven't even felt the pain of that person. And that could be why that we struggle to connect with hurting people who need Jesus. Because we start with trying to fix them instead of listening to their pain. We struggle to connect with people who need Jesus because we start with trying to fix them instead of listening to their pain. So I understand Jesus wept. I get that. But I don't understand Jesus getting tired. Jesus, how are you tired from this journey? I know we got some theologians in the room today. 
you know, well, you see, Pastor Jeff, you don't understand the power of the hypostatic union. He was actually fully God, and he was fully man, and there was this humanity that made him tired. Okay, I get that. I understand. The problem is <clears throat> the disciples were with him the entire way. They had just taken the same journey. So I'm trying to figure out if the disciples are with you, how come they're not tired? You send them ahead to go get some food. They took the same journey you took. It was, if it was that arduous of a journey, it should have been all y'all talking about, whoo, boy, we need to take a seat. That was rough. We're tired. Why did the disciples have energy to still go into town and buy food? That's the stuff I think about when I read Scripture. You mean to tell me the disciples had more energy and they were in better shape than the Savior of the universe? How are you tired? And they got energy to keep walking in the town to buy food. You walked the same journey, but... What we need to realize is this. Just because somebody walks the same journey as you doesn't mean they're carrying the same weight as you. Just because somebody walks the same journey as you doesn't mean they're carrying the same weight as you. We could be walking the same journey but not carrying the same weight. No, we might, we might be in the same place. We might be going through the same thing. But you don't understand the weight that someone else is carrying. Just because we walk the same journey doesn't mean we're carrying the same weight. And Jesus was carrying a different weight than the disciples. I don't think he was just tired physically here. He was tired emotionally. He was tired mentally. Let's be real. He was tired of them. Tired of trying to get these dudes to realize I'm the savior of the world. And you turn up your nose at Samaria and you're the ones I'm about to tag in and leave the earth and get you to be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. There's a problem there. There's a disconnect. And you turn up your nose at the place. That's actually the harvest that you're called to reap here. And I'm tired of y'all. Tired of you not realizing that I came for everybody, not just people that look like you, think like you, talk like you, vote like you. I came for the world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And this is what people don't understand about Pentecost, about the Holy Spirit being poured out. The power of Pentecost is so you can be a witness to the world. We reduce Pentecost sometimes to signs and wonders and an emotionally charged experience with God. And all that is great. I love those times. We need those experiences. But the true power of Pentecost is when the church can get unified and come together and not just having an experience in here, but take the power from in here out there and be a witness to somebody else. And it might be a person you don't like that you don't connect with, that you don't get along with. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, in other words, start at home. Start where you are. Start in your neighborhood. Start with the houses around you. Judea, go to your neighborhood. Spread it out. People who are like you, you have common ground. That's your next target. Samaria, go to the people you don't like. Culturally, they're different. Politically, they're different. Lifestyle, they're different. Those are the people God has called you to as well, and then the ends of the earth. But you won't ever get to the ends of the earth until you first start at home, and you're eventually going to have to go through Samaria. That's the order of the power of being a witness. But we can't get there if we're exhausted, if we're tired, if we're emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually drained. We can't give people something that's being scraped off the bottom. We need to give them something that's being poured off the top. And that requires Sabbath and rest in our lives. 
If we're going to get there, we need rest. But too many Christians don't take the time to rest. They just give up on the mission. I can't. I don't have it. I'm just not blessed with that gift. I've heard people say that to me throughout my 25 years of ministry. Well, I just don't have the gift of evangelism, so they'll have to take care of it. The gift of evangelism is a real thing. The Bible talks about that, but it's a more intense, higher gifting, higher calling. We are all called to be witnesses. Acts 1.8 was not just for people with the gift of evangelism. It was for the church. You will receive power, and you all will be my witnesses. We've got to get there. We've got to live there. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. All y'all, not just one or two, not just a select group, we're all called. And the mission is too important for us to quit just because we're weary. When you get tired, learn to rest, not quit. When you get tired, learn to rest, not quit. So Jesus sits down and he rested and he waits. He waits for a woman who's really struggling, who's got some issues. Can we just pause for a second and think about a Savior who will wait on you? I'm thankful that the Lord will wait on me. When I'm wandering, when I'm off track, he waits for me. Wait for me to get my act together. Wait for me to finish my pity party. Wait for me to stop striving all the time and start Sabbathing instead, if that's a word. Wait for me to come to him. I love that this woman who was coming to the well didn't even know that Jesus had arranged this whole itinerary to go through a city that his posse didn't want to go through because he had a special appointment with her. I'm thankful not that I have the strength to wait on God, but that God has the patience to wait on me because I need that. I'm thankful for a God who will wait on me. Thank God for a Savior who will orchestrate his whole itinerary to wait on you, to seek you. And so he sits down and he waits for her. I'm tired, but I'm not too tired for her. I set up this whole appointment for her. I made my disciples go into the town that they didn't want to be in because I didn't even want her to have to deal with their condescending looks and ask, why is he talking to her? I made them run an errand for me. I didn't need them to go get food. I could have snapped my fingers and had a whole spread laid out before us. I said, y'all go get something because I have an appointment with one woman. And she didn't even know it. And not only did she not know it, she set up her own time schedule to not be bothered. She came in the middle of the day. Women didn't come to the well in the middle of the day. Women came to the well in the morning, first thing, out of the gate. It was cooler, first of all. And that's when everybody went, to get the water for the day. And it was the social gathering place. That's what the women did. Oh, honey, I love your hair. What'd you get your hair did? Oh, there was this place over there. Yeah, that, that's what they did. They gathered around the well, and they hung out. That's when they came. It was the well. She came in the middle of the day because she didn't want to be bothered. She came in the middle of the day because she was tired. Tired of being talked about. Tired of being looked down upon. Tired of church folks, religious folks, tired of people gossiping about her, tired of walking into spaces and everybody getting quiet and starting to whisper. She comes to the well in the heat of the day, Texas summer type of heat. And even though she's sweating, she says, at least I don't have to deal with the looks of those crazy women talking about me. She's got her AirPods in, the timeless symbol of I don't want to be bothered right now, leave me alone. And she comes to the well, and there's Jesus looking right at her. 
And she's got to be thinking, oh boy, here we go. Because she has orchestrated her life. She has orchestrated her life to feel the false rest that comes from isolation. There is a fake rest that comes from isolating yourself, from insulating yourself. It's a synthetic rest. And the reason it's synthetic is because even though you avoid the conflict of relationships, you cannot fight how you were wired and created to live. You were created for community. Rest happens, true Sabbath rest happens in the context of relationship with God and with one another. That's how God designed it. And she comes to the well tired, and there's Jesus. And he immediately tells her he is God, and he invites her to experience eternal life. No, he didn't. What does he open with? The Savior of the world orchestrates this moment, coordinates everything, sits down at the well and waits for her. She finally arrives, and he starts out with, hey, can I get a drink? He didn't need her. But I'm going to ask I'm not going to address your need because you don't even see your need yet. If we only had the insight that Jesus had, we would have, in that situation, I'm guessing most of us would have gone straight to you. I could see what's wrong with you. You've got five husbands. You're living with somebody else right now. You need to get your life right. That came later, but that wasn't the first thing he came out of the gate with. He started with the simple kindness of a conversation. Get to know someone. Break down some walls. Figure out who they are. And do you realize how many rules Jesus was breaking just by talking to this woman? First of all, he's talking to a woman in public. That wasn't done. On top of that, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. That certainly wasn't done. But this is the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It destroys social barriers. It bursts through those walls. The power of the Holy Spirit will make you talk to people who think and act differently than you do. This is what the gospel does. It gives her the courtesy of kindness. Don't tell me you are filled with the Spirit when you can speak in tongues, but you can't speak kindly to someone lost in sin. Because you're missing it. Will you give me a drink? And she looks at him and says, what in the world are you talking about? I'm a Samaritan. That's just not done. And he says to her this. He says, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. In other words, you are missing the moment. The reason you cannot receive the living water that your soul needs is because you don't understand who I am. If you knew who I was, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. Jesus is using the natural water at the well as an illustration to get this woman to realize that her soul is desperately dry. You've been running from man to man in relationship to relationship thinking that maybe they could quench a thirst that they were never meant to quench. And Jesus is saying, I am the Sabbath. I am the rest that your soul needs. And we need to stop running to earthly things to quench a spiritual thirst to find rest. You must drink from him. And if you're not careful, you can even be a believer and still have places that you go to trying to quench a spiritual thirst with something in the natural. You can do it with position or title. 
You can do it with likes on social media. You can do it in relationships. Trying to quench the spiritual thirst with something here on earth, and it never works. It doesn't satisfy. C.S. Lewis said this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And we were. The reason we thirst in the first place is because there must be something that will quench it. Because thirst is inevitable. It's inevitable. Quenching is optional. Thirst is inevitable. Quenching that thirst is optional. If you are on planet Earth, you are thirsty. The question has always been, spiritually speaking, where are you going to quench that thirst? Can you imagine being completely dehydrated and somebody bringing you an ice-cold Coca-Cola, 6,000 grams of sugar, caramel coloring, talking about this is the real thing. Have a Coke and a smile. And you're completely dehydrated. This isn't what you need. This is junk. And guys, these are the false substitutes that our culture offers. Fill in the blank for whatever you want. This is what our culture tries to give us to satisfy our spiritual thirst. Filled with junk, never going to satisfy your thirst. Coca-Cola knows the power of thirst. They do. They are a lucrative business because they understand everybody's thirsty. They must have read John chapter 4 because they know everybody's thirsty. Because you understand Coca-Cola is a company and they don't just make Coke, do they? You know, they understand everybody's thirsty, so if you don't like this option, they'll give you a Diet Coke. Hey, bring on the aspartame, right? Still got that caramel coloring, too. Junk. I could say this because I drink mostly water. Um, (laughs) So Coca-Cola makes Coke and Diet Coke. And if you don't like Diet Coke, man, they'll give you a Fanta. Fanta, Fanta. You know, but this isn't what you need either. Artificial colors, artificial flavors, all sorts of junk that your body just doesn't need. In fact, it ends up, being unhealthy as opposed to satisfying your thirst. If you don't want Fanta, they'll give you Sprite. Obey your thirst, baby. It's all there. Coca-Cola is in the business of thirst, offering all of these substitutes, knowing that not one of them will satisfy truly. Knowing that you can drink from these here and it'll make you more thirsty. That's why you got the raise and the promotion and you're wondering why you still don't feel satisfied. That's why you finally got the person of your dreams and you're looking at them and you wonder why you still feel empty. That's why you finally got the car and you were so excited, but they just dropped a new model and the person drives up next to you and you're like, I hate this thing, why did I even get it? Guys, this is what the world offers. Fake substitutes that leave you more thirsty when you drink from it. The world offers fake substitutes that leave you more thirsty when you drink from it. You can try to obey your thirst and try to satisfy it in the natural. Some people are trying to do that through sex. Some people are doing it through relationships. Some people are doing it through substance abuse. You could do it through power. I think if you finally get a position, you'll be satisfied. And I'm telling you that none of these things will ever quench the thirst of your soul. If you ever want the thirst of your soul to be quenched, if you ever want to not just be a a water intake, but also have rivers of living water flowing through you, so that God can make you be a witness to the culture that is completely dehydrated? We need to experience what God intended. 
And here's the really dangerous part. See, Coca-Cola makes something else too. Water. Some miraculous invention that Coca-Cola came up with. Pure water. But wait a minute. What's this list of ingredients on a bottle of water? I mean, it's a bottle of water, right? Seems redundant. The ingredients list should be one. Water. But not Dasani. Purified water, magnesium sulfate, potassium chloride, salt. What does salt do? <laughs> Obviously, they're not putting a ton in there. But what does salt do? It makes you thirsty. Guys, listen, there are people all over the place who think they're drinking living water. They think they've found spiritual truth. But it's not the real deal. They're in a church, but there's stuff in what they're getting that it doesn't line up with the pure gospel. They're listening to preachers talk about how to live better lives, but it's more about feeling good than following Jesus. They're shutting themselves off from the world, maybe, thinking that's a way to please God. But I want you to hear this. If your faith is more focused on helping your life be better than helping someone else find Jesus, then you're not drinking living water. Thank God for the living water that will satisfy your soul. There is no substitute for pure living water. Nothing added, nothing to try to make it taste better, to go down easier. Just pure living water. I've been thirsty the whole time I've been preaching. I was almost tempted to open up one of these, but I know it's not going to quench my thirst. And this is the power, guys, of Sabbath. Because I cannot be preaching to you and drink from this at the same time. That's the power of a pause. I have to set this down. I have to step away from my calling for a brief moment to satisfy my thirst. That's the power of the pause. Sooner or later, you have to put down what you do and say, God, my soul is so thirsty, I'm going to sit down and rest with you for a while. And God promises he will fill you. He will satisfy your soul. God said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Notice that it's pour out, not pour on. In fact, I think the church today has had enough pour on. That's the problem. If you're dehydrated and I pour water on you, it'll feel good. But you're still going to go home and you're going to pass out. And that's the problem. Many of us have reduced the power of the Holy Spirit to an emotional experience. That's external. But God said, when I said pour out my spirit, it's not just pour on you. I want to pour in you. I want you to be full of my spirit. I want you to be full of my presence. I want you to walk around and everywhere you go, lives are being changed because of my power at work within you and pouring out of you. No wonder the woman at the well went back into the town after this story is done. After Jesus spoke words of life into her, after he transformed her, she went back into her town that the disciples had just gone into and visited, and she ran back to say, come see a man. Come see a man that told me everything I ever did. Come see someone who has transformed my life forever. She had encountered the living water. She was never the same again. Her community was never the same. And her story is still impacting us 2,000 years later. Because she found the living water. Drink 
the rest. I don't know what you've been running to to quench your spiritual thirst. God said, drink the rest. This is a shepherd that leads you, Psalm 23 tells us, beside still waters. Still waters. Because if waters are rushing in my attempt to get quenched, I'll be carried away, but God leads us to those still waters where we can drink. I need a good shepherd to lead me there so I can drink the rest, find restoration for my soul, and then I can live for him. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the rest that you've promised us. That God, in those times of communion with you, you provide a source of living water that will truly satisfy our souls. God, forgive us for looking for satisfaction in other things in this life. Forgive us for trying to grab hold of the false substitutes that the world offers us. And God, let us find that satisfaction in you alone. Teach us, God, to regularly step away from what we do so we can lean into our relationship with you. And God, as we do this, <clears throat> would you help us to live spirit-filled lives where your presence is flowing out of us everywhere we go. God, let us live Acts 1-8 lifestyles where, God, we're not limited by cultural barriers. We're not limited by theological barriers. We're not limited by, by anything that this world would try to divide us. But, God, we are going out simply loving people. And, God, as we do, I pray that you would help us to see transformation take place. Just like this woman at the well. God, use us to accomplish the same thing in the lives of hurting, broken, and spiritually dry people all throughout our day. God, we ask that you would go with us and empower us. And just like the upper room where you poured out your spirit on the, the disciples as they gathered together in unity, God, we open ourselves up today and say, God, would you pour your spirit out into our lives? We desperately need the supernatural Holy Spirit of God empowering us to do the work you've called us to do. So, Lord, we put ourselves in your hands. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.